Good morning. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we'll be picking up at verse 11, one of the most beloved, well-known sections of Scripture in all the Bible. It's good to be back from vacation. We had a great time. We surprised our children last Sunday evening. We, we drove to Alabama, uh, and we we're going to surprise them by taking them to a Braves game on Sunday night. And they were wondering why we were driving through Georgia to get to Alabama. We wanted to answer that question without lying to them. So we said, we're just taking a different route. So we pulled up in Turner Field, and Seth looked up there, and he said, Daddy, there's Turner Field. And Nate said, can we take a picture? And I said, we're going to do more than that. We're going to go into the stadium. And so we had a, a great evening in Turner Field. We swept the Cardinals. Uh, so it was a great night. Well, let's pray, and uh, we will get into our text this morning. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the opportunity to be with God's people. And I thank you for the Word of God and the living Word who is revealed in this Word. We pray that we, each one of us today, by the very Spirit of Christ, could behold Him and love Him and know Him more intimately. And we pray that this word would go forth in power, teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jim Zimbala, uh, who is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York, he and his wife went through the most difficult two and a half years of their life and marriage when their daughter Chrissy rebelled against them and God. About the age of 16, and within a, a short time, she had moved out. And there were evenings that they did not know where she was. And it was just a, a time of great anger and depression and anxiety. He said he would drive to church his 25-mile right or 25-minute route every Sunday morning crying, wondering how he was going to get through the, the service. His wife struggled with depression. He would argue with his daughter. He would, he would scream at her. He would beg. He would plead. He would try to control her with money to no avail until one day God impressed on him to stop speaking to her about this, uh, stop speaking to other people about it, and to begin to pray more fervently. And that's what he decided to do. And then one Tuesday evening, and they have a Tuesday night prayer service similarly to what we do on Monday nights. And on this particular uh, Sunday night, or Tuesday night, uh, a, an usher brought a letter to him from one of the ladies who was at the prayer service. And the letter, or the note read, Pastor Cimbala, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. Well, he hesitated because he didn't want the meeting to be just about him and his family needs. But he sensed that there was something in this from the Lord. And so he took the mic and he said to his prayer group, the truth of the matter, although I haven't talked much about it, my daughter is very far from God these days. She thinks up is down, and down is up. Dark is light, and light 
is dark. But I know God can break through to her, and I'm going to ask Pastor Bokstaff to lead us in praying for Chrissy. Let's all join hands across the sanctuary. And he writes in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, to describe what happened in the next few minutes, I can only employ a metaphor. The church turned into a labor room. Isn't that a great description? That's what the church is. It's not a community center. It's a labor room. There arose a groaning, a sense of desperate determination. As if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. When he got home that night, his wife was waiting up for him. And they sat around the kitchen table drinking coffee. And he said to her, it's over. And she asked, what's over? He says, it's over with Chrissy. You would have to be in the prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, if there's a God in heaven, this whole nightmare is finally over. 32 hours later... After two and a half years of rebellion, he was shaving, and his wife Carol suddenly burst through the door, and she said, Go downstairs. Chrissy's here. Chrissy? Yes, she's here. Just go down if you want to see. She wants to see you. So he wiped off his shaving foam, headed down the stairs, heart pounding. As he came around the corner, he saw his daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name. Chrissy? She grabbed his pant leg and began pouring out in anguish. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and mommy. Please forgive me. My vision was as clouded by tears as hers. I pulled her up from the floor and held her as close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back, Daddy, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, and so she continued. In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me I was heading toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been and how wrong and how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther and he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? And I looked into her bloodshot eyes and once again I recognized the daughter we had raised. The prayer behind... Her repentance is another sermon for another day. 
But let me just say this. It may be the reason our churches don't see more prodigals coming home is because we don't pray like the Brooklyn Tab prays. That may be part of the reason we don't see sinners converted to Christ. But that's another sermon for another day. But here's the point today. The reason Chrissy came home from the human perspective is that she was brought to the end of herself. She was brought to her senses. Through the prayers of God's people, no less. But she was brought to the end of herself. But from the divine perspective, the reason she came home is because Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's very good at what he does. He's effectual. He is foolproof in what he does. And no chapter of the Bible better conveys this than Luke chapter 15. We've seen the situation. The situation is found in verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. They knew they were sinners. They had been brought to the end of themselves and they recognized a man filled with grace who had come to love them, who had come to forgive them. That's the situation. And that brought a stress with the religious people. Verse 2, the Pharisees, the scribes, they grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Self-righteous religious people do not love sinners. There's no compassion for sinners. There's no love for sinners. And so it's that context that Jesus describes and begins to lay out a parable. Notice verse 3, parable is singular. It's a three-part parable. The first part of the parable, he gives us the story of the, the lost sheep. The second part of the parable, he gives us the story of the lost coin. And in the third part of the parable, he gives us the parable of the lost sons. These three stories are intended to be read together. And they give us a composite picture of lostness. In one sense, we're lost because we're like sheep. We do that which is right in our own eyes. We just, we respond to our natural inclinations and we just stray. We don't consider it outright rebellion. It just feels right. It's the natural thing to do. After all, I'm only human. We're like sheep, straying from the shepherd. That's one aspect of our lostness. It's not the only aspect. Then there, there's another sense in which we're like the lost coin. Because of difficult circumstances, we're just lost. In that particular case, the, the coin may have rolled off the table or through the, the fingers of the, the housewife. But we're just lost. But then there's another aspect of lostness that we see today. All three have to be seen and taken together. We're lost because we're willfully rebellious. We're idolatrous. We worship ourselves. We love ourselves more than we love anything else on earth. This is also a composite picture of God our Savior. In the first story, we have the, the seeking shepherd who goes into the dangerous place to find the, the lost sheep. And he brings the sheep back on his shoulders. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. 
In the other story, the second story, he's, he's like this woman who searches diligently and, and lights a lamp to find the lost coin. It's a picture of the work of the Spirit opening our hearts by the light of God's Word, by His Gospel to, to show our lostness. In those first two stories, the stress, the emphasis is on God's proactivity in saving sinners. He's not just passive. He's on the move. In the third part of this parable, today's story, we see another aspect of God's saving character. His willingness to forgive sinful rebels. It's a glorious, glorious aspect of his saving character. His compassion and his willingness to save, to forgive repentant rebels. Indeed, the story begins with rebellion. The rebellion of the younger son. Look with me in verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons. Now that kind of signals something to us. This isn't just about one son. This is about two sons. We're going to look at the the second son next week. There was a man who had two sons... And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The son is living at home, and he hates everything about living at home. In fact, there's only one thing about his father that he loves. His father's provision, his inheritance. But the potential of cashing in on his father's inheritance is very slim because it doesn't look like his father's going to die in the near future. And so the uh, patience of the son has run out. Now in Jewish law, the firstborn son received two-thirds of the inheritance. And so he is the elder or the younger son, and so he would have only received one-third at most of the inheritance. But no matter the amount, it would have been deemed rebellious on the part of the son to ask for his inheritance before his father's death. Kenneth Bailey, who lived in, has lived in the Near East for decades and has studied this passage in its original context, who knows this passage better than anyone, has written books on this passage, argues that there is no known case in that world of a son asking for his father's inheritance before the father's death. In fact, he only knows of one contemporary example in Iran. A son asked his parents, his father, for his inheritance, and the parents considered this as an act of desiring the father's death. So it's likely what this boy is saying in this passage is that he wants his father to die. And in the ancient world, disrespect, rebellion towards parents by a son was condemnable. Deuteronomy 21 verses 18 to 21 tells us that the the law required that the son be stoned to death who is rebellious to his father. That's a context here. 
But the Father here does what the Son asks. It's kind of a picture of the Father just giving him over to his desire. Sometimes that's the judgment, part of the judgment that we experience. Now the Son has what he wants. He has no freedom. I mean, he has all freedom. He has no constraints. He can go where he wants. He can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Pure, unadulterated freedom. That's what he desired all alone. Here is a man who wants what the Father can give him, but doesn't want the Father himself. He loves the Father's provision, but he doesn't love the Father's person. Now it's easy for us to sit here and go, that little, spoiled, rotten kid. But when we look at the prodigal, we're looking in the mirror. Ask yourself this question. This is a good gauge. Is my prayer life, my devotional life, is it fervent even when things are going well in my life? Or do I only get fervent and desperate when the bottom has dropped out? The things, put it this way, our prayer lives, the intensity of our prayer lives, and the content of our prayer lives reveal how much like the prodigal we really are. How fervent is your prayer life? How fervent is our corporate prayer life? It reveals something about how close we are to the prodigal. Many of us, when we pray, we spend very little time in praise. We spend very little time in adoration. We get straight to the point. We begin to make intercession and petition. And oftentimes our petitions are focused on temporal things. We're not even praying for lost people. We're not even praying that God's kingdom would be extended to the end. We're not praying the way Jesus told us to pray. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We don't pray that way. Why? Because we're more like the prodigal than we really care to admit. We want his provision, but we don't love his person. And yet if that is how our lives are fully colored and characterized... That's a picture of what it means to be lost. That's lostness. Lost people every day enjoy God's provision. They enjoy His hand, what He can offer, but not His person. And yet Scripture makes very clear that life's essential purpose, the very purpose God has given us for life, is to worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's our purpose. And when we lose that purpose, and other purposes become primary, they destroy us in time. Recognize that. When praise and worship and magnifying the glory of God is not our essential purpose, something else will be. And that will destroy us in time because we're living in a manner that is opposed to the way God created us. 
And the prodigal will learn this. Note verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Freedom from authority... And we don't know how long he had this freedom before bankruptcy set in, but eventually his freedom from authority has led to bankruptcy. God is giving, the Father is giving him over to his own desires and it has led to a judgment on himself. That's what it means to be prodigal. That's what it means to be prodigal. The word prodigal, in fact, has a couple of meanings. I'm going to give you the first meaning here, and we'll look at the second meaning in a few moments. The American Heritage Dictionary defines prodigal, and the word is not in your Bible, by the way. It was first given to us in Jerome's uh, translation of the Latin Vulgate. But it's faithful to the text. The reason he's called the prodigal son is because the word prodigal literally means wastefully extravagant. Wastefully extravagant. And the son has been wasteful. He has been extravagant with what the father has given him. When we waste what God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures, in a manner that is not befitting who He is. And what He has called us to do, that's what it means to be prodigal. Reckless living is how the, the, the word describes it. What does it mean to be recklessly living? It's living apart from the Father. Living apart from the Father, do, having your own agenda, that's what it means to live recklessly. We note in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now there are two kinds of brokenness that the disobedient experience. Now what I mean by disobedient, I mean those who have never bowed the knee to King Jesus. If you're a Christian today, as evidenced by a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, as evidenced by love for God and your brother, as evidenced by uh, the fact that you've been born again, you've been transformed. Um, if you are born again today, this is not who I am referring to. I'm referring to those who have willfully resisted the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And there are two kinds of brokenness for the disobedient. The first kind of brokenness is the kind of brokenness all of us experience. It's just the brokenness of living life in a broken world. We live in a fallen world and therefore we're going to experience heartache and pain because of that. So whether you're a believer or not a believer, you will experience that kind of brokenness. There's a famine that breaks out here. That's from life in a fallen world. But there's a second kind of brokenness that we could avoid. It's the brokenness that comes from persistent, unrepentant, foolish, and sinful choices. He has experienced both kinds of brokenness. He ran out of resources. That's because of his disobedience. And he ran in to a famine. That's because of life in a fallen world. 
Now, who is he speaking to? Who is Jesus speaking to here? He's speaking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are at this point going, "Mm, I know where you're going with this. What did you think was going to happen? You can't continue to live like this in rebellion to the Father. You can't waste all your goods and not think the bottom is not going to drop out in your life. The Pharisees are on the page with Jesus at this point. And sure enough, just as they expect, bad things start happening. Notice in verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now it's a Gentile citizen. Why? Because the guy has pigs. Jews don't mess with pigs. Who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now it's interesting there. The point here isn't that feeding pigs is a messy job. Under the old covenant to even be in contact with pigs, pigs would be to be deemed unclean. Now he is working with the pigs, and not only that, uh, the one he's working for doesn't care enough about him to even provide food for him, so now he begins to desire the food the pigs are eating. Boy, that is a metaphor. That, that is a picture of life without God. I mean, you can live in a penthouse on Fifth Avenue in New York City and be experiencing this kind of life in all your wealth and opulence. This is a picture of life without God. Notice in verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And now the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus say, uh, tell this story, are thinking, now that's the message. That's why you should never respect your Disrespect your father. This is religion 101, the Pharisees would have said. Of course, that's what's going to happen. You disrespect your father, and this is what happens. But then Jesus is going to throw them a curveball. A curveball that's going to shatter and deconstruct all their categories that is the foundation of their view of God. Because he's going to talk about the repentance of this prodigal son. The repentance of this prodigal son. Notice in verse 17. But when he came to himself, that is the son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Importantly note that this impending repentance begins not in the depths of his heart, but in the pit of his stomach. It really began with a physical issue here. Self-imposed wounds have a way of causing us to wake up and see the truth about ourselves. That's where the boy is at this point. You see, the way to the joy of kingdom, that is, Jesus, gospel, kingdom, wakefulness, is always through personal brokenness. And that's why Jesus, in fact, would say in Matthew 5, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. You will not be awakened to your need for God until you have personally been broken. And so if you stand here today or sit here today and and you recognize that you have never given your life to Jesus, 
You have never recognized your need for what he has done for sinners by taking the wrath of God on the cross and being raised from the grave for our pardon and forgiveness. It's because you haven't been broken. Personal brokenness is always the avenue to joy. Avenue to uh, gospel and kingdom wakefulness. The main reason for this is the self-idolatry that governs our hearts. Self-idolatry, self-worship. Loving ourselves more than we love God. That's the reason. We'll always gravitate to lesser satisfactions than the satisfaction we find in Jesus. We'll always gravitate to that. Why? Because the lesser satisfactions appeal to the God of self. And satisfaction in Jesus requires us to put to death the God of self. And we don't like to do that. Satisfaction in Jesus requires us to put to death in our members fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. For most, Jesus will not be our ultimate treasure until the rug has been pulled out from underneath all our other options. As we behold their bankruptcy, as we behold the vanity of all these other options, indeed, the greater our brokenness, the greater our brokenness, the greater our trust in the living God. And the greater our trust in the living God, the greater our joy in His salvation that He has given us in Jesus Christ. As John Stott wrote in his book, uh, The Cross of Christ, we will not cry hallelujah with authenticity, authenticity until we have cried, woe is me first. We will not cry hallelujah with authenticity authenticity until we have cried, woe is me first. Notice it says he came to himself. The New American Standard says he came to his senses. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's it's just a word for repentance. It also suggests that up to this point, he had not been himself. When we sin unrepentantly, we are acting less than human. Because God created us as humans, as the image of God, to praise Him, to worship Him. That's what we were created for. And sin is a revolt against His purpose for us. Sin is a revolt against God's purposes for the image of God. And this never leads to human flourishing. It never leads to human flourishing. My dad has a 1970 Chevelle. I don't know anything about cars. But I know that car is beautiful. He says it was the greatest muscle car they ever made. You may have a different opinion. And I find it hard to disagree with him. It sits there in the garage. Okay? And the thing is flawless. Low miles. Imagine if he were to take that car mud riding. It would be fun for a while because there's a lot of horsepower in that car. 
but it would not lead to muscle car flourishing because it was not created to be mud-ridden. Okay? We were created to worship. We were created to worship the true and living God. And when we sin, that is a revolt against God's purpose for us. And we will, in time, implode. The reason there is dysfunction in your life and dysfunction in your family life is because you have revolted against the purposes of God. Just like the prodigal here. And the prodigal has come to learn this. And having learned it, the one who was sick of home is now homesick. He's homesick. Notice verse 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. True uh, repentance involves contrition. What is contrition? It's sorrow for sin. It's a Godward sorrow. It's mourning over your sin. It also involves confession. Confessing, agreeing with God what he says about sin. It also involves change, repentance, restitution. That's repentance. Notice he says, I will arise, I will go and I to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is a remarkable illustration of the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's in this repentance the the son has experienced blessedness for the first time in his life. Note, at this point of his repentance, we now begin to see the heart of the father. We've seen the son's rebellion. We've seen the son's repentance. Now, as this section closes, we see the rejoicing of the father. Look in verses 20 to 21. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There's at once a father-centeredness to the son's repentance. But there is a son-centered compassion to the father's welcome home. In the far country, and that's where he was, and that's where some of you may be this morning. In the far country, he had learned how misery felt. And now back at home with the father, he learns how mercy feels. He has come to realize the bankruptcy of his sin and the sufficiency and the love of the Father. And that mercy comes clothed in this shameless display of of compassion, uh, an embrace. He embraces him. He kisses his son. And this shows that while the son was far away from the father's house... He was never far away from the Father's heart. 
let's not allow our familiarity with this text to breed contempt. This is giving us insight into God the Father's heart for sinners. Sometimes we have this Greek stoic notion of God that there's, no, there's nothing of, of emotion in him. Yes, he is immutable. His character never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. But we're seeing something of the heart of God. And this should be the heart we have for sinners as well. But the Father's love was a costly love. Now, why do I say it was a, a costly love? Well, the custom... In that day was when someone, kind of like the son who was making reconciliation, when he came back home, he was to bring, he was to come bearing gifts. But the son here comes empty. He comes empty-handed. The only thing he has to offer is his need. His need for clothing. His need for food. Most importantly, his need for forgiveness. This is a picture of our need. What do we have to offer God? Nothing. If you're going to be saved, it's not because you jump through some religious hoops. Those religious hoops will, will move you further away from God. There is nothing you have to offer God. I don't care how often you go to church or how often you read your Bible. God is not impressed. I don't care if you give a triple tithe. God is not impressed. You have nothing to offer God but empty hands and spiritual bankruptcy. That's where the Father or where the Son is. He came in a state of humiliation. But the humiliation really won't come until he experiences community life. Now, why do I say that? Because in that day, and then Kenneth Bailey is helpful here, there was a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony. When a Jewish son blew his inheritance with Gentiles, when he arrived back into the town, they would have a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony where they would cut him off. They would cut this person off from the community. But the father is proactive here. The father doesn't wait to allow the village to concoct their plan of cutting the son off. Instead, he ran. He ran to the son and he embraces him. He kisses him. Fathers and elderly men in that day did not run in public. Why would the father risk public humiliation by running to the son? Because he is circumventing this cutting off by the community. This is condescension for the sake of reconciliation. Making himself low. Making himself of no reputation for the purpose of reconciliation. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. And it had nothing to do with what the prodigal deserved. He deserved stoning. He deserved judgment. And instead he receives mercy. And this should give every lost sinner hope. You sit here today and you go, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the thoughts I have. You are no more perverse and sinful than the prodigal son who receives the mercy of God. Note in verse 22. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This is a picture of sonship and acceptance. And it gives us more insight into the celebration in heaven when sinners repent, as we saw in the first two stories. You know, I gave you one definition of the word prodigal. The first definition I gave you is the definition wastefully extravagant. That's why this has been called the story of the prodigal son. But there's a second definition of the word prodigal. A second definition is giving in abundance. Giving something in abundance. And that's why many in church history have renamed this the prodigal father. You have a prodigal son who wastes extravagantly. But you have a father who gives mercy and compassion in abundance. You have the prodigal father. Keep in mind, if the son had been dealt with according to the law, he would have been stoned. He would have been put to death. And we would be having a funeral here, but instead we have a feast. Note verses 23 and 24 as we close. And he says, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This description of the son describes us all. All of us are born into a state of sin and misery. The Bible describes that as spiritual death. Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. It's a picture of perversity, corruption, depravity. He says, My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost. That is, he was separated from the Father. But now he has been found. This is the spiritual experience of every lost sinner who comes to the Father in repentance and faith. There may be some here this morning. And perhaps you're already a Christian. You go, what does this text have to do with me? Luke is writing to a believer. It primarily has something to do with you. He's writing to Theophilus so that he would have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. God the Spirit has inspired this text for believers to strengthen our faith, hope, and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also a message to unbelievers that God is compassionate and merciful, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But we must repent. Jesus is challenging what most people have believed about God in history. He's challenging them concerning their view of God, sin, and salvation. In essence, the message he is laying out here is going to completely destroy the worldview of the Pharisees. Who believe that God is impressed by our religious efforts. And yet Jesus is saying, our moral efforts have nothing to do with salvation. 
It's all of grace. Yes, the story demonstrates the bankruptcy of being a sinful, self-willed, rebellious sinner like the prodigal. But as we're going to see next week, it also demonstrates the bankruptcy of moralistic religion. In reality, both sons represent exile from the father. Being exiled. Okay? That's the story of the human race. Exile. Adam and Eve sinned. They were exiled from the garden. Cain sinned by killing his brother Abel. And that after offering a a worship and sacrifice to the Lord that was not rooted in faith. He was exiled. We've seen the story of exile in Genesis. Jacob was exiled. Later on in, in the Old Testament, Israel will be exiled. Right? From the promised land. And even when they return back from Babylon, they are in exile in the sense that they're under political oppression. God's glory is not returned to the temple they built. And so when Jesus comes, they're expecting a Messiah who will deliver them from political oppression. But he comes to do something greater. He comes to deliver us from spiritual exile. Remember, this this passage cannot be read without the end of the book, which takes us to the cross and the resurrection. Okay? There's no making sense of this passage unless you read chapters uh, 23 and 24. Because what happens is the son experiences exile for us. Remember, the law requires that the lawbreaker be stoned. This son should have been put to death. He was a lawbreaker. He had rebelled against the Father. And Deuteronomy 21 tells us that the curse on him was to be stoned. In order for us to receive God's grace and mercy, his anger has to be satisfied on sin. And here's how he does it. He sends his son. And his son comes... And experiences exile for us. He is crucified outside the gate of the city. Hebrews 13 verse 12. Which is a picture of community exile. That's Kazaza all over again. And then he is raised from the grave after a God forsakenness. That he experienced where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And having been raised from the grave, Jesus the Son, our representative, experiences an exodus from exile. Okay? His resurrection was his exodus. And when we put our faith in him, we experience the exodus of all exoduses. We experience exodus from spiritual exile. That's how the Father can show mercy to rebellious prodigals who come home. And when we're brought home, we're brought to dine with Him at the feast of homecoming. It's what the Bible describes as the Messianic banquet. And the Lord's Supper 
is an anticipation of that messianic banquet. Former prodigals experiencing the grace and the mercy of our prodigal God.